we are used to the powerful actors getting away with tons of, of crimes and there being a culture of impunity. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Today's podcast is Lebanon, accountability with a capital L and a capital A. First off, we take a look at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. It recorded a guilty verdict last year against a senior Hezbollah official for the car bomb that killed former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri in 2005, a huge political figure in the country. And to help us get our heads around the court and its relevance to Lebanon, we have Olga Kavran, former head of Outreach. Hi, Olga. Hello. But we also want to situate this discussion in what's going on in Lebanon itself. Um, For many people, the most vivid image out of that country most recently was the huge explosion in the harbour in Beirut in August last year. So what's happened since then? Do we actually know who's responsible? Are Lebanon's courts actually able to provide accountability? To explore this aspect, we have Aya Majdoub from Human Rights Watch. Hi, Aya. Hi, everyone. So, Olga, we have a lot to say about the STL, don't we? There is a kind of a funding crisis as we're recording this. But let's first look back at the Hariri judgment, which also kind of came in the middle of the Beirut explosion aftermath. Can you tell us what the the judgment actually say? And and do Lebanese in general kind of know about this? How was outreach in, in all of that chaos? Well, you're right, Felice, the timing could not have been worse in terms of the judgment coming out because it was scheduled to come out on the 8th of August. And as you know, the the explosion uh, occurred on the 4th of August and therefore it was postponed for 10 days, but still it came in the aftermath of the biggest explosion Lebanon had ever seen. And in fact, I would say the world had ever seen in terms of uh, that type of non-nuclear explosion. The case itself, ironically enough, dealt with the biggest explosion in, in Lebanon up to that date, until the fourth, before the 4th of August 2020, which is uh, saying something in a country that had seen 15 years of war, as we all know. So the explosion which killed uh, Rafiq Hariri, 22 other individuals and injured 226 other people, occurred on Valentine's Day in 2005. The assassins, according to what the judges found in the judgment, had carefully chosen the spot to give it extra effect. They hired a suicide bomber who detonated between the equivalent of between two and a half and three thousand tons of um, kilograms, sorry, of uh, TNT. They blew up the entire convoy, killing all of these uh, individuals, and of course the main target, who was the former prime minister. The judges found that to do that, to assassinate somebody as closely guarded as Mr. Hariri was, both with his own private security as well as the security provided by the state, somebody who traveled in an armed convoy of at least six or seven vehicles, one of which was an ambulance equipped to deal with the possibility of attacks and so forth, The judges found that many steps had to take place. So they found that uh, the assassins had to obtain detailed knowledge of the convoy and Hariri's place in the convoy, that they had to establish closed interconnected mobile networks that they used for the surveillance and the execution of the crime. They had to select the suicide bomber. 
And they also, uh, which is something that might be forgotten, they also uh, orchestrated a false claim of responsibility. Uh, the judgment is 2,641 pages long. So whatever I say, following you know around 300 witnesses in court and 171,000 pages of evidence is not going to do it justice. So I'm just trying to do, to do a very very brief summary of something something very complex and long. But it is important uh, in that brief summary to stress that the judges found that probably around 20 individuals were involved in the planning and execution of this crime. They found one individual guilty because the threshold in international criminal trials is very high. It is beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is why they could only find one person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, at which point they were obliged to acquit the other individuals. The judges also stressed that they're not a truth and reconciliation commission, and therefore what they could find is limited by the process itself and the rules of the process. But they explain in the two and a half thousand pages, they provide a treasure trove of facts and information about the period preceding the assassination of Hariri, about the period that is often referred to as Pax Syriana, which is the period between the end of the Civil War and, the, and 2005, and many other very important facts about Lebanon's recent history. But most important is that contrary to what seems to have become the main headline in the news, this was not the work of one man, and the judges make that very explicit and clear in their judgment. And before we turn to Aya a bit, a bit about the intersection between this uh, judgment and, and local courts, I just want to ask you, Olga, about the outreach around that verdict, because I'm trying to figure out practically how you managed in the aftermath of that explosion. I'm imagining uh, there are probably problems with internet, there's just problems with reaching whoever you want to reach. What, what did you have to do to uh, kind of disseminate the information about this this judgment? Well, the challenges were huge for so many different reasons. I mean, the main being, of course, that it's in the aftermath of the Beirut blast, and it was very difficult to speak about anything other than the blast for anyone here and anyone around the world for that matter. Um, so obviously people were more interested in speaking about an explosion that happened two weeks prior rather than 15 years prior. This is understandable and that's normal. The other limitation, of course, was COVID. So that was another thing. So we were obviously limited to doing things online. The third thing that unfortunately uh, happened was that the tribunal itself was already in a budget crisis. And so its uh, senior officials were not publicly speaking about the judgment. In my view, that was not the right decision because they were focused on other things, I presume. And so I think that in, in my view, in retrospect, I think that unfortunately the tribunal itself had really failed in that aspect. In addition to that, at the end of last year, the tribunal abolished the outreach uh, and legacy section, even though it is provided for in the, in the rules of procedure and evidence of the tribunal. And again, it did so because of funding issues. Let me bring um, Aya in here. So Aya, just speaking as you know, somebody who's who's Lebanese and interested in in this area, how did you sort of interact with the work of the SDL? Did did you notice it 
happening? Did it did it make a difference uh, to you? I mean, I, I remember the 14th of February when um, Prime Minister Rafi Hariri was killed very, very vividly. I mean, I was uh, you know, a young uh, kid in school. I was in school in Saudi Arabia at the time. And it was all anybody could, could talk about. And just going home and seeing the scene of the explosion and the confusion among everybody in Lebanon, my family and, and their family who are still here in Lebanon and lived very close to where the explosion was. It, it was a very formative moment, I think, for many young people in Lebanon. And it was the reason why I went into this field and the reason that many of my friends similarly, similarly did. But what I remember very clearly even then was thinking that there will not be accountability for, for this crime because that's what we're used to in Lebanon. We are used to the powerful actors uh, getting away with tons of, of crimes and there being a culture of impunity. And that, that was just the way it was. And so that's a big part of the reason that I do the work that I do, because I ref- even, you know, I was 13 at the time, refused to believe that somebody could just blow up a prime minister in the middle of the capital and there'd be no no repercussions for that, regardless of I mean, the political affiliations of this individual or, or my political affiliations. And throughout the years, I mean, I remember at the beginning when the tribunal was, was formed, uh, I was following it very closely, as were many members of my family. But then the fact that it took very, very long, uh, I think slowly people started to lose faith in in this international process. And I think that that was uh, intended. I mean, there are certain forces within the country that didn't want to see this be a success, both because of you know, impunity for the crime that they committed, but also because of the precedent that it would set for future uh, future crimes. And we're really seeing this manifest now with the Beirut blast. I mean, we are absolutely convinced that there can be no justice within the domestic judiciary. But at the same time, just saying the word international justice or international investigation then takes people's minds to the STL. uh, And people think, well, this took years and years and years. And then we spent so much money on this tribunal. And at the end, it convicted one member of Hezbollah uh, and not the entire, not Hezbollah. And of course, I mean, I understand that it's criminal, individual criminal accountability. I understand the beyond a reasonable doubt. And I understand that their job wasn't to look into Hezbollah's culpability. It was to look into the culpability of individuals. But that gets lost in the the public domain. And so, and it's really created this disillusionment with justice, both national justice, but also international justice. And for the Beirut blast, it's just made people resign to the fact that there will never be justice. How do you respond to that, Olga, from your perspective as somebody who's you know, devoted so much time to try to explain this tribunal to, to people? And this is your, your natural ally that you're talking to, somebody who's really interested in what you do. How, how does that make you feel? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's completely understandable to me. I mean, the passage of time obviously will impact upon how people will see this process. You know, when I first arrived in Lebanon, which was back in 2010, to start working for the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, and, and I started learning about the country, one thing that became very obvious to me from the outset 
is that in a country that does not have any confidence in its own judiciary, still doesn't, didn't then, doesn't now, and in a country that really has not much reason to have confidence in the international community because there's any number of UN Security Council resolutions which relate to Lebanon, which are just being ignored. And so there's a lot of, and there's a lot of injustice and a lot of uh, uh, alleged crimes that have been perpetrated that have never been dealt with uh, in Lebanon, within Lebanon, between Lebanon and Israel, Syria, and so forth, that it became, you know, coming in as uh, an international court is not going to be immediately obvious uh, as, as you know, people are not going to be immediately supportive. That much is clear and understandably so. Right. And so it was always going to be and it was an uphill battle. But um, so my I fully understand uh, when people speak about the time that has passed. I fully understand when people speak about the limited mandate, because this is also something to be kept in mind. I mean, Lebanon has suffered through dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, assassinations but they did not get a tribunal that deals with all of them. It has a tribunal that deals with only some of them. And now is even in the peril of prematurely shutting down before it actually deals with the cases under its own mandate, which was narrowed to begin with, which if it happens would be an absolute travesty of justice and a huge failure for both the international community and the senior officials of the STL who have taken on themselves the responsibility to fulfill this mandate and, in my view, have an obligation towards the victims, first and foremost. And do not forget that because of the nature of these attacks, all of Lebanon are actually victims because, as the judges found in the judgment, this was not intended only to assassinate Hariri. It was intended to destabilize the country. And therefore, you could see the entire society is a victim. To what extent and how and how much we succeeded, um, it, it, it's, it's impossible for me to judge. But uh, I hope that there will be studies like there have been on other outreach programs at other tribunals that will shed some light on, on the actual impact of, of what we tried to do. And Aya, when you hear, when I hear Olga explain it, do you think also there's this aspect of this idea that maybe Lebanese people had that this international tribunal can solve something that we can't do because of all the issues with the Lebanese political class and kind of idealized this international court in a way? Definitely. I mean, I think people had outsized expectations of what this court could accomplish. And it was used by supporters of Hariri and then the opposition to Hariri, both for their own political ends, without really relying on facts. But unfortunately, that's the information that people got. So if you were, you know, pro-Hariri, the expectation was that this court was going to bring justice to the assassination of Hariri, and it was going to show that Hezbollah and Syria were complicit and that they were doing this to destabilize Lebanon. I mean, the expectation was very, very, very broad. And then on the opposite side, you have people saying it's an illegitimate court, it's politicized, it's an attack on Syria, on Iran's proxy Hezbollah. You know, so those individuals were primed to mistrust the, this, this tribunal as another tool of the international community to weaken the axis of resistance. And so the, the political dialogue that emerged around the tribunal was 
incredibly politicized and not grounded in facts. Uh, and so as then time went on and Lebanon spent you know, huge amounts of money on the tribunal without really seeing results as quickly as people had hoped, I think it generated a lot of disillusionment on the you know, pro-Hariri side and the people who were saying uh, maybe we overpromised and this, is, this isn't what we wanted and this isn't what we're paying for. And then on the other side, uh, people who said, oh, we're vindicated, look, it's, it's a mess, there are all of these scandals, it hasn't delivered justice yet, and so let's never resort to international mechanisms again because they don't work. As time went on, uh, it became just another political tool and the justice part of it, I think, got lost. Aya, I wanted to also ask you to kind of broaden your way of looking this and to, to tell us a bit more about what's going on in Lebanon's judiciary, because you've mentioned already that, that people just don't have trust in it. Is that because of corruption? Is that because these uh, are political appointees? You know, where's, where's the problem with, with justice actually in Lebanon itself at the moment? So many people see the justice system in Lebanon as just an extension of the corrupt sectarian system that we that we have. And, you know, one of the most, you know, outrageous uh, examples of political interference in the judiciary is the system for the appointment of, of judges. So there's this body called the Higher Judicial Council, which appoints judges to various uh, posts. And eight out of 10 members of this higher judicial council are appointed by the executive. So the government has, plays a very big role in deciding which judges get appointed to which courts and how judges move up in the judiciary. And so what you see then is judges acting based on the preferences and the priorities of the parties that appointed them rather than the public good. And the politicization of the judiciary was so, so clear uh, and outrageous. Uh, in, and we saw this in an incident that took place a few uh, weeks ago when there was a dispute between one judge who's backed by uh, the Future Movement and another judge who's backed by the Free Patriotic Movement. It was a dispute between the judges, but then you had supporters of both parties going down to the street and clashing with each other in support of these judges. So the sectarian and, and, and partisan affiliations of these judges isn't even a secret. It's out in the open to the extent that you have party loyalists going down to the street and clashing with each other in support of, of these judges. And if you ask them about the details of the case, I think very few people would, would know, but you know, you support the person that your party appointed because that's the person that's going to protect your interests. And we see this time and time again in almost every issue that we work on in Lebanon, from torture to freedom of expression to the rights of vulnerable communities. The, every report that we have has a section on how the judiciary is failing to uphold the rule of law and how the judiciary is failing to act in the best interests of, of, the, of the public. And what we find is that usually the judiciary almost always shows a bias in favor of the powerful interests in the country, whether religious, political, or even financial interests. Uh, and this comes through in 
when and how they decide to prosecute cases. So cases filed by politicians and influential people move forward very, very quickly, whereas cases filed by torture victims or by NGOs take years for the investigation to even to even start. And then we see this also in the way that judges deal with evidence and the, the, the um, importance that they place on certain pieces of evidence versus others, and then in the final judgments uh, as well. So it's an incredibly politicized system that has lost all credibility among uh, the public. But now, so the question isn't, you know, does this judiciary have the trust of the public? I think people from across the political spectrum would say no. But then the question is, then, you know, what next? How do we remedy this, this problem? How do we move past it? Okay, we'll ask you that in a moment. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get another question in it. So there, there's the the issue that the Lebanese judicial system is also uh, politicized and and very heavily criticized. If if we look back at the SDL, they are now planning this second trial. It seems a bit of in a way uh, maybe throwing money at the problem. It's the same man who's on trial, uh, Ayash. Uh, it's the same setup with the trial in absentia. Uh, so you have kind of all the same problems of the earlier court case. I also spoke to a victim's lawyer in this case who was very, very angry that it might be uh, dismissed because of the funding crisis, saying that this creates kind of first-tier victims and second-tier victims, first-tier victims being, of course, in the Hariri assassination, the son of Hariri was prime minister when there was a lot of money pledged to the special tribunal for Lebanon or the, or the government paid that bill. Uh, now this trial is with uh, about other political attacks and political assassinations. And suddenly the government is saying we don't, we maybe not have that money. Why is this such an important trial to have? And how can you convince people that they're not just kind of throwing money uh, into a system that's not really... Um, believed or, or also has issues with credibility at the Lebanese level? So we know that these international criminal justice is slow. We know that it suffers from a lot of issues of you know public perception and legitimacy amongst the communities primarily that, it, that are primarily affected by it. We also know when it comes to the STL that there are many questions which need to be answered. Why did it take so long? Could it have been done more quickly? Our trials in absentia, because this was the first time that they were conducted at an international court, is that an appropriate way to proceed for an international court? These are all per perfectly valid questions which need to be answered. But answering these questions by shutting the tribunal down is, is, is absolutely not appropriate. I, I would definitely agree with what the lawyer for the victims, Mr. Zhurvi, said, uh, that this is creating a two-tier justice. So in an already, in a situation in which the mandate of the tribunal was already limited, was already narrow, you're narrowing it even further? Is that the message that the international community wants to send? Secondly, the allegations in the second case are not proven yet until the trial is held and until the judges have been able to pronounce. However, we do have an indictment. We have a pretrial brief. The suggestion that this was committed by the same group of people, because that's a fair, the allegation. Yes, one individual is being tried. However, the indictment and the pretrial brief mention other individuals who are implicated. 
without a resolution of that case, we won't know the full story. And I would argue that when it comes to establishing what happened in Lebanon, the narrative will be very different if we're looking at one seemingly isolated assassination of a high-profile figure, or if we're looking at a series of assassinations of high-profile figures who all fit a certain description and are within a certain context. Now, again, as I say, the presumption of innocence absolutely applies for the second case, so it remains to be seen. But this is the point. This case must be tried in court, and it must be tried in the court for which it is intended. And finally, I personally, I mean, I've experienced now in working in international criminal justice over, over 20 years, I do not understand under which mechanism the tribunal can be shut down. How does that work? Because when the ICTY and the ICTR were being closed, it was done after they had established a mechanism to continue different functions of the tribunal that had been identified as necessary. The same happened with the Sierra Leone tribunal. They were methodically closed down by preserving the evidence, by preserving the cases, by transferring that which needed to be transferred to the mechanism and so on and so forth. What's going to happen if the STL is simply shut down from one day to the next? And what message does that send about accountability and what message does that send to Lebanon? What message does that send to victims of the Beirut blast? What message does that send to victims around the world who are still waiting for justice? Because again, the STL doesn't exist in a vacuum or in isolation. I'm finding absolutely fascinating to uh, to hear how uh, Olga situates the STL in this bigger picture of uh, Lebanese accountability. But it, it, it leads me to ask that, that question to you, Aya, that you posed yourself. What needs to change in Lebanon itself in order to bring accountability there? And I think that probably that's going to be our last question to you before we go to our last part where we, we ask you some additional questions. So please try to round it all up in one answer, Aya. Well, I mean, ultimately... There needs to be a reform of the entire sectarian system and a move to a state that is not based on sectarian affiliations and sectarian quotas. How, how you do that, I mean, that's a discussion that we could have for, for hours. Uh, but in terms of the more concrete steps that we're working on now to, in order to bolster the independence of the judiciary, there are two uh, laws put forward by civil society on the independence of the judiciary. One is on the independence of what they call the judicial judiciary, and one is on the independence of the administrative judiciary. And both of these laws would completely change the way that the membership of this uh, higher judicial council is decided on, and it would make it such that there were some judges who were elected by their peers, um, and it would basically very, very, very much weaken the influence that the executive has over who is appointed to this higher judicial council. It would also change the way that judges are promoted. It would change the training that judges receive and integrate more uh, international law and international human rights law in particular. And the hope is that it would create a much more accountable and independent uh, judiciary that is able to do its work separate from the political class and is able to hold the political class to account because their positions are not anymore beholden to this political class. But 
you know, that's a very technocratic solution to a very political problem. And even if, you know, in a country like Lebanon, even if sectarian affiliations were not taken into account as openly as they are now, I mean, you could still see this dynamic at work because ultimately political parties control most of the resources in the country and they have the means to enforce their will in an extrajudicial way that will for sure impact the judiciary. And so what we are trying to think of, and we don't have the answers, but some of the solutions that we're trying to think of are solutions akin to what was established in Guatemala, for example. So Guatemala had the, the Guatemala Commission Against uh, Impunity, uh, and they were able to provide a technical assistance, but also more importantly, political cover uh, for the public prosecutor's office to then go, go after and investigate corruption of figures that previously would never have been investigated. But what was really important and I think different to the STL is it was based in, you know, they were assistants to the national prosecutor's office. So all of the expertise and all of the technical assistance was absorbed by the, the prosecutor's office in a way that I think is slightly different with the STL. So we're trying to think of, of ways, I mean, this was in itself a very new proposal. So you know, we're trying to think a bit outside of the box and think of how this model potentially could be adapted to, to Lebanon uh, and could be made you know, one of the many preconditions of Lebanon receiving aid. You know, this issue isn't even been being discussed now, it's not on the table. So how can we build this dialogue, show that there are you know, solutions out there to these seemingly intractable, intractable problems and that we can learn from the experience of civil society in other parts of the world that face a very similar political dynamic in terms of you know, political class being controlled by this you know, outside you know, actor. Olga, you wanted to comment? Yeah, just to add one more thing to what uh, Aya is saying, there is not going to be any chance of finding out what happened, for example, in the Beirut blast without international assistance. That much is clear. It's now been, what, over 10 months? And we have seen how the situation has unfolded. There was uh, an appointment of an investigative judge, which took time because, again, the, the, the groups that Aya was mentioning could not agree, so they finally agreed on one judge, he actually did more than anybody expected him to do in terms of, at least in terms of uh, trying to investigate high-level individuals. And he was (laughs) rewarded for his efforts by being removed from the case by the suspects he was investigating. And the new judge has been appointed. In between, there was two months of absolutely no movement whatsoever. And there has been no news. I mean, I understand, of course, that the investigation is always going to be confidential. I don't expect you know, press conferences on, 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 a, on, a, on a daily basis on the conduct of an investigation. But it simply doesn't mean like it's moving in any uh, direction. More seems to have been uncovered by investigative journalists looking into the matter in the, in the, uh, into the, sh- the, the provenance of the ship and its cargo than has been done by the judicial authorities in Lebanon thus far. And the victims are more and more frustrated and they're more and more frequently publicly asking for help. They're asking for help, and we're talking about thousands of victims. I mean, this city is unrecognizable. It is unrecognizable. I've lived here now for 10 years, and every time I go down, it is harrowing. I cannot even imagine what it's like for people who have lived in Lebanon, in Beirut, all their lives. 
it is unrecognizable. It's a disfigured city. It has more than 200 people who died and more than 6,000 injured with grave injuries. I'm just going to ask one final question to both of you and ask for, uh, you don't need to give a one word answer, but a really short answer to each. So the question to you, Olga, is, you know, we're putting this out during the week of June the 7th. Will the STL really exist by then? I mean, what's your prediction? How is the STL going to live to fight another day? And the question to Aya is, are we going to see real change happen? Uh, I mean, you're hopeful, but are we going to see it happen? So short answers from both of you. Olga. All I can say is I certainly hope so. And I can repeat that, you know, it is really the duty of the international community that established the STL and of its senior officials to do everything in their power to uh, continue to fulfill the mandate that they have been entrusted with. So I certainly hope so, but it remains to be seen. Are we going to see real change? I mean, if we continue on this trajectory, then I think the answer is no. What we have now is a completely unaccountable political class who looks like they're even going to get away with something as catastrophic as blowing up half of the city. So, but I don't, I don't think that that is in- inevitable. I think that the international community should start heeding the calls of uh, the Lebanese public, and particularly the victims of the blast for justice, and establish a fact-finding mission to look into uh, the corruption and the incompetence and the mismanagement that enabled something as horrific as the Beirut blast uh, to happen. And then, you know, the so, you know, finding out the truth behind the Beirut blast, I don't think will solve all of Lebanon's problems, but. I do think that it will show that there's a different way of doing things, that impunity is not the norm, and that there are international mechanisms in place to enable us to hold high-level political figures accountable for decades of mismanagement, corruption, and human rights abuses. Thank you very much. Um, At the end of our podcast, we always ask some asymmetrical haircuts questions, and we're going to kind of shorten it a little bit and just ask for the one that everybody seems to like the most is what are you reading, binge watching, listening to that you would recommend to our readers? And it doesn't have to be accountability related, but of course it can. Uh, so Olga, tell us what is on your nightstand, what is in your podcatcher if you listen to podcasts or what do you watch on TV? Well, other than your podcast, which I find very interesting, I listen to a few others mostly focused on uh, Lebanon at the moment. I listen to the Beirut Banyan, which is a very interesting uh, podcast hosted by Roni Shata, whose uh, father was also assassinated in Lebanon. And uh, I listen to the Lebanese Politics podcast hosted by a couple of uh, very good journalists uh, locally. I'm working on my PhD at the moment, so most of my reading is not particularly exciting to anyone outside the field. So that's, unfortunately, most of my reading is focused on that. I haven't read a novel in a long time, but I did read something very interesting recently called Fake Law by an anonymous, I guess, writer. goes by The Secret Barrister. It's very interesting, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in in law as such. It's very UK-focused. But I think it has a lot of, uh, it, 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 it can get you to think about uh, whatever country you happen to be living in or interested in. 
Yeah, follow him on Twitter, the at Secret Barrister. It's very funny. Or her, we don't I know. I was going to say that. Him or the her. The person, yes. I'm listening, I'm listening to the audio book, which is in a male voice. So I'm immediately, you know, like I'm saying it to him. <laughs> yeah. I'm gender stereotyping too. Well, Aya, what's your, uh, what are your recommendations? Um, so also most of my, the podcasts that I listen to tend to be about Lebanon. So definitely second, um, the two that Olga mentioned. And then the third one that I've been listening to more and more recently is called Saturday After Dinner. So Saturday means an informal conversation. Um, so it's a two Lebanese people who host conversations about with uh, guests about anything from, you know, political accountability to human rights, but also to, you know, sex in the Arab world and you know how people have uh, come out to their parents as being queer. Uh, it's a very, very, it's always a very, very interesting discussion and it's not very structured. It's meant to be an informal conversation like you're sitting with them at the dinner table. Um, so I find that very enjoyable. Um, and in terms of books, I've recently started reading Black Wave by Kim Khattas, which is a sort of history of the Saudi-Iranian rivalry and how it's reshaped the region in the last few decades, but told as, I mean, it reads like a novel. It doesn't read like a history book. It's incredibly interesting, but it's also so um, fascinating to see that, you know, intractable conflicts or seemingly intractable conflicts as we think of them today are actually very, very modern and were shaped very consciously by political actors back in the 60s and 70s. Really, really fascinating, um, but it's, it's hopeful in that it gives you a way out of this uh, intractable conflict as well when you realize the very modern origins of it. Thank you both very much for those recommendations on Lebanon and beyond. Uh, we'll put them all up in the show notes. So uh, just uh, thank you very much for taking part. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.